welcome to the February 2023 episode of Money Mountaineering with actuary and author Peter Newworth, FSA, FCA, who asked the question, what's your future worth? I'm Hope Katz Gibbs, producer of the show on the Incandescent Radio Network and Incandescent TV. Thrilled to be here today with our guest, Steve Vernon, FSA, who is president of Rest of Life Communications. Steve says, for the next phase of my life, I want to help people make important retirement planning decisions so they can live long and prosper. He conducts research on the most challenging aspects of retirement, including finances, health, and lifestyle. Steve previously served for nine years as a consultant research scholar at the Stanford Center on Longevity. He retired as vice president of Watson Wyatt Worldwide after a 30-year career helping Fortune 1000 employers design, manage, and communicate their retirement programs. Steve has also written more than 1,000 columns on retirement and longevity topics for CBS Money Watch and Forbes.com. His latest book, released in July 2020, is Don't Go Broke in Retirement, A Simple Plan to Build Lifetime Retirement Income. We are so excited to have you here today, Steve. So I'm going to throw it over to Pete to conduct our fabulous interview. Take it away. Well, thanks so much, Hope. And thank you, Steve. I mean, this is really a thrill. I mean, this you are the guy I really wanted to have on this show right from the beginning, because in many ways, you, you've been an inspiration to me. I mean, when we were working together, I remember when we were working together at Watson Wyatt, you, you were writing that book called Live Long and Prosper. And I, you know, being a, being a Star Trek fan, of course, I, I related very much to it and to your approach to things. And I guess I'd like to just start by, you know, what was, what's been your journey from that point? I mean, I, kind of lost touch for a while after you were after that book came out and you went on. So what happened? Well, uh, you and I were on the front lines of uh, plan sponsors and employers transitioning from traditional pension plans to 401k plans. And that's where we worked together at Watson Wyatt. And I knew all along why employers uh, didn't want to sponsor traditional pension plans anymore. They didn't like the risk that they were assuming. So what did they do? You know, they terminate their pension plan and pass that risk off to their employees. And so I thought, you know, this is placing a lot of responsibility on employees to decide how much to save and how to invest that money. And then when they get to retirement, deciding if they have enough and what they're going to do with that money. So um, I retired from Watson Wyatt in 2006, more than 16 years ago, to embark on what we now call an encore career taking my experience and my skills to really focus on helping people as they approach their retirement and enter into retirement, managing their finances in a world where they're more responsible than they used to be. Well, yeah. And and you mentioned the, the fact of all that that shift from DB to DC, which of course, you know, we, we both went through and helped companies do that. And I, what I recall about all that period is that in some sense, employers were pushing on an open door because employees wanted control of their money and they wanted access to it. But I guess, you know, be careful what you wish for is is sort of the takeaway I have from that. Well, right. And I think both employers and employees didn't think this all the way through. And this is an important theme for actuaries is that we do tend to think things all the way through. Um, but both the employees wanted to see the value of their money now uh, in their 30s and 40s, and that makes sense. They're focused on accumulating money. 
but you start entering into retirement and you should really start focusing in on generating lifetime retirement income. And that's a perspective you really don't gain until you get into your 50s. And so that's what I've been about is helping people understand this transition into retirement and all the risks that they can face and how to address those risks. In some ways, you're, you're a more pragmatic guy than me because I look at that and I think, oh, yeah, well, what's the flip side of accumulation? It's decumulation. Now, that's really the problem that we're, we're facing is decumulation. And there's a lot of theoretical solutions. But what are, the, what are some of the practical risks that you see facing somebody that's trying to decumulate their assets? Okay. Well, and uh, we'll get into this about my theory of a broad definition of longevity risk and a narrow definition. But the narrow definition of longevity risk is, is outliving your money. And that's an, indeed an important risk to address. It's just you're not done when you address that risk. And so what someone who's facing entering into retirement, they have a lump sum of money in their 401k or their IRA, and they've got to decide what they're going to do with that and how to make that last the rest of their life, no matter how long they live. And so that's the challenge that we face. And in a general sense, I think I'm advocating that people shift their thinking from accumulating a pile of money, a portfolio of assets, to generating a portfolio of retirement income. And you've got to shift your thinking. And that's what I've been all about, is how do you shift your thinking to develop a portfolio, a diversified portfolio. And just like um, a diversified portfolio of assets has each category has different features and different characteristics. It's the same thing with a portfolio of diversified retirement income. Each source of income has its own characteristics and you want to be diversified. So that's so, really what my shift in thinking has been about. So can you talk a little bit about what those components are and how this broader longevity risk is really addressed in the way your, your approach to this is? Well, let me just continue on the portfolio of retirement income for right now is okay. that my focus has been primarily on middle income people because I see surveys, the vast majority of them do not work with financial advisors. And uh, I like to put solutions out there for somebody who in a prior generation may have had a significant pension and now they've got half a million in their 401k account, uh, you know, and what now? And so there are really three ways, practical ways to generate income through your IRA or your 401k. And one is to use your savings to maximize and optimize your social security. A second would be to invest the money and have some kind of a systematic withdrawal from those assets so that that, that scheme will, in theory at least, last the rest of your life, has a good chance of doing that. And then finally, the third one is buying some kind of an annuity. Now, there are other methods, of course, but those are the three that are most available to most plan participants. And I can talk about each one of them, but um, that's an example of diversification, something from Social Security, something from invested assets, and something from an annuity. You're focusing on the assets that people have accumulated, but don't you also, at least I recall in some of your books, have talked a little bit about working part-time and other ways that that you can generate income and, and thinking more holistically, if you will, of, of the whole income generation problem and, and cash flow. 
Well, right. And so um, what I'm going to talk about is both from personal experience, but also what I'm advocating to my audiences is that if you do a good job assessing if you have enough money and what you're going to do with that, uh, the vast majority of people uh, will realize they need more retirement income than they had previously thought. And I'll, I'm going to say something which is a mouthful, but some of my research at the Stanford Center on Longevity, I, I see the average assets of people entering into retirement. And the vast majority of these people have not saved enough and they don't have enough financial resources right. to retire full time at age 65 under their current level of spending. Right. That's a mouthful. So let me repeat it so it sinks in. The vast majority of pre-retirees don't have enough financial resources to retire full-time at age 65 under their current level of spending. So their choices are, they face some hard choices, either work longer or reduce your spending, some combination of that, or, or and, actually not or, um, looking at your other assets, such as home equity. And so this is now we're getting into a broader definition of retirement is tapping into other assets like uh, the most you know, promising thing might be real estate, but also working longer. But I can tell you, you get, you get in your 60s and you just don't want to work at the same intensity and the same level as you did throughout your career. So it really leads you to looking at some kind of work that will generate income and you're not working as hard or as long as you used to. Maybe you enjoy that work longer. And so actually, that's what I've been doing for the last 16 years. And so um, that's really what I advocate as a holistic look at this is to consider all your assets and the most promising assets there are the time of your, your expertise and your time to generate income by working and your real estate. Well, that's, that's right. In fact, you and I worked together on a, on a white paper, I think you published a while ago for the Society of Actuaries. And I know in those conversations, we were talking about the various assets that people have when they retire. And one of the not talked about much asset is the present value of your future earnings as a, you know, and compared to the 401k, it may not be as big as the 401k, depending on your health and so, so forth. But I don't think people are thinking so much about, they think of retirement as a either or, and it's really not an either or, is it? Well, it's not. And also, um, I think thinking of retirement as an either or is a frame of mind you have before you get there. <laughs> and I can tell you, once you get into those retirement years, you start having a broader view. And so I know a lot of people my age and, and older who are still working part time. They may have retired and they had kind of a retirement honeymoon for a couple of years. And then they realized, oh, I need more money. <laughs> you know, And so they start looking for how they can make some income. If you're someone in your early 60s, Let's suppose you have a partner or you're married. Um, and if you have above average education and above average income, which is probably our audiences here, it's easy. It's highly likely that one of you is going to relive another 30 years into your early 90s. And so living solely on financial resources for 30 years is, a, in my view, a very risky proposition. A lot can go wrong in 30 years. And so you end up concluding, oh, maybe I should work longer than I had previously thought, but how do I do this in a way that lets me enjoy life more? Right. Well, one of the things that I remember from one of your books is the way you broke up the, the retirement, the years of retirement into the go-go years, 
the slow-go years and the no-go years. So can you talk a little bit about how that fits into your whole revenue income generating? Uh... Sure. And I wasn't the one that coined that phrase. I just picked it up from somebody else. I thought it was pretty clever, though. So the go-go years, you know, you're still active, you're still vital, you're still healthy, and you could probably still work. Um, but it also could be the time when you're most likely to travel and pursue interests. And so um, I think that's the key to reflect on during what I'm calling, we're calling the go-go years. What's the right balance between working and enjoying life more? And for people, those go-go years could be anywhere until your mid-70s to your mid-80s, possibly, if you're really healthy and fit. But what we're seeing also, let me say, is that if you look at patterns of how retirees spend money over their complete lifetime, we're seeing actually some statistical confirmation of the go-go, no-go, go-go, slow-go, and no-go, is that people tend to spend more money in the early years of the retirement, and uh, that's the go-go years. They tend to spend less money in the slow-go, which you're just not as active and vigorous as you used to be, but you're not yet incurring huge bills for medical or long-term care. And then that spending ramps back up again in your final years. And so I think that high spending, going down to low spending and going back to higher spending kind of reflects the go-go, slow-go and no-go years. Inevitable, you'll be spending more money on medical and long-term care in your final years of life. Well, and it, but it also highlights how there's an there's another aspect to you know income generation or what you take. It's also a budgeting thing. I mean, understanding how your expenses are going to change over time, and your capacity to either work or even manage that money over time is a sounds like a it's a heck of a challenge. Well, right, and. Uh... Speaking of managing your money, that was one of my projects uh, at the Stanford Center on Longevity is we developed a toolkit for people to have their finances managed in their later years when they're uh, not quite as sharp as they used to be. And an uh, interesting statistic to throw out there is that uh, people age 75 to 79, about one in five have some kind of diminished decision-making capacity. Doesn't mean they have Alzheimer's or dementia, it's just diminished. And that goes up to one out of two in your 80s. And yet um, people are still managing their money during that time. And they're much more vulnerable to financial losses, either to making mistakes or becoming a victim of fraud or exploitation. And so that's one of several risks that we advocate people think about uh, as they transition into retirement. And I think a lot of baby boomers had uh, wake-up calls watching their parents go through this phase. And so that's one of the several aspects I've been working on. Yeah, I do remember, and I may have, it may have even come from you. This this uh, this graph of how many people can answer the question, "What's ten percent of a hundred? and how it at, you know at at age sixty five we all could, but then it starts to decline until it's a frighteningly low number for people in their mid eighties. Well, and, yeah, I'll tell a poignant story from that. Is the the project that I told you about? We're looking at toolkits for people to manage their money late in life. We interviewed a bunch of people for that. And um, one very poignant story was a woman who said, you know, I'd go out to dinner with my father. He was a widower, but he was a CPA, did his own investments. And um, he could do a lot of math in his head. But one day we were out to dinner and he looks at the bill and he says, can you calculate the tip for me? I can't do that. Right. And she went, 
uh-oh. Right. <laughs> he would normally just do that in his head like that. And that's an example of there are tips along the way that you're getting there. And part of that project was looking out for those warning signs. And uh, that's something that we don't really want to think about because it seems kind of scary that I might have diminished capacity, but it's really just smart to, to plan for that. So other other than planning for it, what should retirees thinking about as they contemplate their reduction in capacity or the, that their ability to, to manage their money is going to decline? Well, let's start with which uh, financial products and services you're working with, because, you know, one way to kind of put your finances on autopilot is to use some money to buy an annuity. And that way the money just falls into your checking account once a month. And you really can't lose that money easily due to fraud or making mistakes. Um, you know, another way which we've talked about is to use some of your savings to optimize social security because social security drops in your checking account once a month and you can't lose that once it's started. But then you can also, if you're using invested assets, a lot of financial institutions will let you lock down your account. And what that means is that you've got your investments locked in, you've got your withdrawal scheme locked in. And if you want to change that, you just have to go through extra security features to make that happen. Well, that's a good lockdown situation. So I'm just giving you examples of ways to structure your sources of retirement income to minimize those losses. I'm going to throw you a curveball here. What about the family? Do you encourage people to have their get their kids involved or others? Because it seems like it seems like one of the issues as I think about the problem of diminished capacity is who can the who can the retiree trust and to to help? And maybe you could talk a little bit about advisors versus family versus where does a retire an elderly retiree get help? as they're losing their capacities. Okay, and let, I'll do that, but let me first give an advertisement for this. Uh, it's called the Thinking Ahead Roadmap. And uh, it was funded by the Society of Actuaries and AARP. So there's no product or services. It's out as a resource for free to everybody. And we're proud of that. Um, and so it gives six steps to prepare a plan for protecting your finances. And step number one is to choose a financial advocate that you trust. For a lot of people, that might be their adult children, but there's a growing awareness that a lot of people are aging solo or they never had children, um, or you might have children, but you can't trust them to manage your money. You know, So step one really is finding someone you trust. And if there aren't any family members out there, then you might want to look beyond that to you know nieces and nephews or actually pay someone to do that. And so uh, that's step one. But I do want to say for a lot of people, um, their family is their their insurance company in some respects. Yes. Yes. You know? And that's there's nothing wrong with that as long as you're not being a burden, too much of a burden on them. As, as I think we talked about, Steve, before, a, a lot of the people that listen to my podcasts are advisors. And, and my question is, what is the role of the advisor? these days? How do you see the, the, the financial planner or the, the trusted advisor? What What is that? How can they help? Okay. Well, um, a lot of advisors are called in for narrow um, but important tasks like investing your money, or if you're a retirement planner, developing a scheme for developing retirement income. And indeed, those are important tasks. And that's where 
a lot of advisors make their money. Um, but what I would advise them to do is earn that money. And what I mean by that is that um, there are other risks that people in retirement should pay attention to, and I can detail them in a second, but an advisor could at least be conversant in those risks and bring those risks to their client's attention. And if they can deal with, help their clients deal with those risks, fine, but often they might wanna hand them off to another professional. And I think that's how advisors can build trust in the sense that they're serving their clients in a broader way. Um, and not necessarily in a way that makes them money, but that actually is a way to build trust. So that's, that's I think, the role of financial advisors is to do your job with respect to investing and drawing down money, but also help out with these broader longevity risks. Yeah, I mean, I, I also am a big believer in knowing your advisor really well. Do your due diligence because, you know, there's a lot of advisors who are about like, know your client. But do, do you have some tips for the, the, the person contemplating retirement who doesn't have a lot of money to hire advisors? How should they look for someone? Okay. And actually, I've got a paper out on my website uh, out there called Get Help. It's a good question. And I advise people to look at at least two aspects. And first is what are their experience and their credentials? And what is often not known is that to get the common professional credentials in the as an advisor's, all these credentials are focused on accumulating money and they haven't focused as much on spending in retirement. And there are a set of specialized credentials, additional credentials you can get that have formal training on drawdown strategies and social security and all these risks we're talking about. So I would suggest look for those additional credentials if you can. So that's one thing to look at. And the other is how they're paid. And I really would like people to get paid advisors to be paid in a way that doesn't create biases in their their recommendations. And my least favorite way to get paid is through some kind of a sales commission, because then they might be trying to sell something that makes them the most commission. There's a conflict of interest. Now, I'm not saying everybody's going to, that's paid that way is going to act unethically, but the temptation is there. Right. Um, and so I'd rather see, ideally, actually, in my view, the best way to pay your advisor is by the hour, or by the project, just like you'd pay your accountant or your lawyer, actually is the, the cleanest way to pay somebody without having any, any biases. But as a practical matter, a lot of advisors charge a percent of assets under management, and that's okay. But they have some conflicts as well, because they want to have the most money under management, and they aren't likely to tell you to go buy an annuity. So um, this is part of your homework and your due diligence, is to spend time selecting your financial advisor. And actually, I'd call that a retirement advisor, which is more than just a financial advisor. Right, right. So um, we we're, we only got a few minutes left, but I so I really want to I really want to shift to a a question that's I mean you and I are well I guess I, maybe we look really young, but we're we're both <laughs> retirement age, and we have both uh, addressed had to recently address exactly one of the questions you were talking about is when to take social security and this is i guess this is uh, you can listen to both of us because we have different approaches i personally took my social security as soon as i hit my normal retirement age but you did not can you talk a little bit about your thought process and 
whether you, if you were, if you were as young as I was, you would do this, the, do what I just did or not. Okay. Well, yeah, let me tell you what I did. My reasons is that I've, I am delaying my social security until the maximum age, age 70. And actually May 1st, this of 2023, it's coming in. And so I've been waiting for that. And the reasons you can look at decisions or analyze decisions from a financial perspective, but also kind of in a, a psychological and, and decision-making perspective. And there's plenty of evidence that for the vast majority of people, the best financial decision is to delay until age 70. And I can get into the details if you want. So um, that's one set of decision-making. Now, some people will say, oh, but Social Security is going to be cut in about the year 2033 or 34 because our Congress is not going to fund up the benefits and we might get a 25% haircut. Uh, I've done the math there. Even if you assume that'll happen, delaying till age 70 is still better because it's still going to happen to you. If they have a 25% cut, it's going to happen whether you start at 66 or 70. Only the cut is applying to a bigger number if you wait till 70. Right. And so those are the financial reasons, but also go into the psychological reasons uh, and actually the longevity reasons, because if uh, my wife and I are lucky enough that we live into our 90s and we're less able to make decisions, having a bigger Social Security benefit coming, coming in is better than not. And so that's actually dealing with the what actually is called the tail end of risk, Right, is that I'm a lot more worried about that tail end than if I die in my 80s or 70s, uh, if I die in my 80s or 70s, uh, I'm dead. You know, I don't have to worry about those risks anymore. So right. uh, I want to take care of that tail end of risk. And I can do that by delaying my Social Security until age 70. Well, well, you're almost making me regret my decision to take my uh, Social Security at age 66 and three months, which happens in March. Uh, which is my normal Social Security normal retirement age, but not quite. And and the reason is that I am not sure that I'm going to live till 95 or whatever. And I see mortality as being generally it's more it's a more dangerous world these days than it used to be. And interest rates are quite a bit higher now than they were back when your advice, I thought, was a no-brainer, because with the higher interest rates and higher mortality rates, those late factors, those late actuarial increase factors are just not quite as attractive as they once were. How would you respond to those kinds of challenges? Okay, well, first of all, I'm not going to say that you made a mistake by starting it when you did, because uh, I think if you make it at least till your full retirement age or normal retirement age, that's a lot better than most people who started as soon as they can at age 62. And so you get into some personal preferences here. Um, but just in response to what you said, what's what's most important is not the level of nominal interest rates. It's the real interest rate that you're earning. Ah. And interest rates right now are higher than they used to be in a nominal sense, but they are not higher than what they used to be on a real sense. And Social Security is, as you know, adjusted for inflation. Yes. And so one way to check this, there's a great program out there that was developed by a man named Mike, Mike Pap Piper, and his, his system plugs in the real interest rates and then helps you analyze which is the um, most appropriate uh, 
strategy for you uh, from a financial perspective. Right. And there are other reasons as well. But um, if people want to look at that, there, there are various Social Security um, and analytical systems out there they can do online. Well, that's that's great. OK, well, I think that's uh, I guess I'm having a little bit of buyer's regret, but but not too much for, for uh, having started, having to turn it on. And I think we're about ready to wrap up. So your book is, the, your latest book is Don't Go Broke in Retirement and Rest of Life Communication. But can I, can I just ask you, what's next? I mean, you're still in the go-go years. So what do you, what do you got planned for the, for the future? Well, it's interesting, uh, hitting age 70 and being able to start my Social Security benefit, you know, up until recently, it was kind of an intellectual thing, but now it's becoming real. And um, I'm talking with myself and my wife about, mm, I've, I've worked in retirement since I was age 22. Um, maybe I should think about being retired. You know? But fortunately, in the business that uh, I've selected for myself, we could turn the dial. So uh, my plan is just to turn the dial down a little bit and uh, turn the dial of traveling and seeing grandkids and others up a bit, um, but just kind of be open to new possibilities. Yeah, well, as, as long as you don't disappear completely from, from the retirement uh, consulting and financial planning world, um, that's okay by me. So, but anyway, I, I just want to thank you again, Steve. This has really been fantastic to have you on and, and best of luck to you in, in your retirement and your semi-retirement or your non-retirement or whatever whatever comes next. Well, Pete, it's been a pleasure and uh, it's good to reconnect again with you. So uh, thank you very much for having me and thanks to your audience for listening to us. Thank you. Thank you, Steve Vernon, FSA president of Rest of Life Communications and author of Don't Go Broke in Retirement, A Simple Plan to Build Lifetime Retirement Income. You are watching and listening to the February 2023 episode of Money Mountaineering with actuary and author Peter Neuwirth, who asked the question, what's your future worth? Thank you, Pete, and thanks to our audience. Please tune in next month when Pete will interview award-winning certified financial planner Margarita Chang, who is host of the weekly financial podcast and video show Margaritas with Margarita and author of the new book, Diary of a CFP Pro. I'm Hope Katz-Gibbs, producer of the show on the Incandescent Radio Network and Incandescent TV. Have a great month, and we'll see you all soon. <laughs>